either. You're listening to The Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 28, Hellenistic Women Part 2, Queens and Royal Women. I saw her once hop 40 paces through the public street, and having lost her breath, she spoke and panted, that she did make defect perfection, and breathless pour forth breath. Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. For vilest things become themselves in her, that the holy priests bless her when she is riggish. In one of the most famous passages of Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, Antony's loyal comrade Enobarbus relays with a mixture of awe and revulsion towards the mystical and alluring charm of the Egyptian queen Cleopatra, a woman of opulence and power who would bring the ruin of the Roman Republic through her seduction of otherwise virtuous Roman men. From the end of the Roman Civil Wars to Shakespeare's Britain and the Romantic and Orientalist art movements of the 18th and 19th centuries, the trope of the exotic Eastern Queen has fascinated both the public and popular culture, with the likes of Sheba and Zenobia of great interest. The Hellenistic Queen also falls into this category as well, the most obvious example being Cleopatra herself. Like the rise of the kingship, the position of a queen had radically transformed during the Hellenistic period, where they would move from background characters of the royal household to major players in the political landscape. My goal with this episode is to give you a general understanding of the role that Hellenistic queens took on as royal mothers, as semi-divine patrons, and sometimes even as the head of armies. In order to understand Hellenistic queens, we need to follow the changes and evolution of the role that was influenced by multiple cultures and regions of the pre-Hellenistic world, mainly Greece, Egypt, Persia, and Macedon. In mainland Greece, political power was almost entirely excluded from being held in women's hands, never mind the fact that monarchies in general were extremely uncommon. Ever the exception, the city-state of Sparta was one of the only major Greek city-states to grant considerable political and economic power to their women, and to have kings at all. Their unusual system of a dual ceremonial kingship extended this power to the daughters and wives of Spartan leaders, producing some famous women like Gorgo, who would reportedly chastise or emasculate envoys and outsiders visiting her father's court in the early 5th century and these royal women would continue to hold considerable clout well into the Hellenistic period, though it was largely thanks to land ownership and economic reasons rather than a designated system of political authority. Outside of Sparta, places like Athens and Thebes would continue to exclude women from public offices. In Macedon to the north, things were a bit different. The role of king in Macedonian politics was always seen as something like an archaic throwback to the Iliad of Homer, were rulers engaged in heroic leadership by throwing themselves in the thick of battle and personally distributing gifts to their followers. Not to mention, they also had a predilection for drinking parties and a polygamist attitude towards marriage, especially by the time of Philip II in the middle 4th century. We have relatively little about Macedonian kings prior to this period, and thus we have even less so about their wives and daughters. Typically, Macedonian queens and royal women were not necessarily named as such. We often can only recognize them by their personal names, rather than a specific title like Queen Phila. 
This is due to the nature of polygamy and Macedonian politics, since multiple marriages were arranged for the sake of alliances and treaties, as decided by their fathers or male guardians. And generally, there was no indication of primacy of one wife among other wives. These women largely played background roles, such as managing the royal household or performing religious rites. But essentially, their political rights were no greater than that of Spartan royal women. By the time of Philip II, however, this had begun to change. A great number of formidable royal women arrived on the scene, such as the half-Illyrian daughter of Philip named Kynane, who was reportedly trained in the arts of war and fought a number of conflicts on her own accord, or her daughter, Eurydice II, who would throw herself into the wars of the Diadohoi as an ambitious leader as well. Above all else is Olympias of Epiros, the mother of Alexander the Great, who had an incredible level of ambition and political skill to ensure that her son would take the throne after Philip's death, leading some to even suspect how she might have plotted the latter's assassination in 336, though I remain skeptical on this. This brief period of very ambitious and powerful Macedonian queens would not last for long, as the wives of the later Antigonic kings of Macedon seemed to have retreated once again into the background. But that is only one side of the story. When Alexander and his generals took Macedon's armies into the lands of the Persian Empire, they took along much of their institutions with them, including their monarchy, which was gradually transformed and changed as they intermixed with the traditions of the populations they ruled over. Places like Egypt and the Near East had a long tradition of monarchy stretching back millennia, and it was often in the interests of these new Hellenistic rulers to adopt or incorporate these traditions, both consciously and unconsciously in order to better ingratiate themselves with the majority of their non-Macedonian subjects. Royal women in the Persian Empire operated on a similar level to the Macedonians, where power was centralized largely in the king's hands, but there is evidence to suggest that the women of greatest rank would be due to age, such as the mother of the king, and they were capable of owning property or economic operations. Compared to Persia and Macedon, Egyptian women held political and legal rights that were unmatched, and although the male pharaoh was still the more dominant partner in the relationship, an Egyptian queen was still capable of wielding a high level of power and respect from her subjects. Famous names like Nefertiti populate the historical record, and this tradition for greater equality would be expressed most predominantly by the later queens and royal women of the Ptolemies, who, out of all the successor states, seemed to be consistently the most politically ambitious and proactive women during the Hellenistic period. And now that we've covered the gradual changes that occurred up to the Hellenistic period, it is time to actually talk about Hellenistic queens proper. Well, I should clarify that I'm probably not going to exclusively use the title Queen. As pointed out by scholar Elizabeth Carney, such a title is rather specific. And perhaps it is better to use the term Royal Women as not only did the wives of the current king play a role in the institution of Hellenistic monarchy, but the sisters, mothers, and daughters all took part without necessarily being queens themselves. The functional role of a Hellenistic queen is hard to nail down. Officially, there is no real definition, since although we have a strict word for a king, a basileos, the feminine version basilissa is not the same thing. Basilissa was used both by primary wives and unmarried daughters of various kings, so more than one individual could hold it at any time in a family. 
Carney postulates that the use of the title Basilisa was a way to signify a symbolic or ideological development of the predominance of women in the royal dynasty, and thus their contribution to said dynasty's power and legitimacy. But for convenience sake, I will interchangeably use the terms, so please forgive me. Now, on to the discussion. In my discussion on Hellenistic kingship, I had a brief aside about royal marriages and their role in the diplomacy of the period. Marriage among and between royal households was essentially the main political function of royal women. In essence, whenever a treaty was signed or a temporary alliance was made between two kings, there was almost always an exchange of daughters or sisters. This wasn't a set merit contract whereby a wife was made the premier queen of the domain. She was often but one of many wives in the personal household of the Basileos. Polygamy was a carryover from the practices of the Macedonian kings of the Argiad house, and the ones conducting such marriages would be the guardians of these female candidates, primarily their fathers or brothers, whoever was on the throne at the time. The polygamous and political nature of these marriages meant there was certainly less stress on till death do us part, since these marriages could be annulled on a whim based on the fact that the power struggles of Hellenistic kingship demanded war on a semi-regular basis, so wives would often go back to their guardian households, and they would be pawned off to another husband. This doesn't mean that there were no consequences in doing so, and to prevent an over-enthusiasm for inquiring and disposing of wives on top of increased primacy in the household, the nature of the dowry provided by the wives' guardians meant that repudiating the bride would lead to giving up often very valuable gifts. In the case of Berenike, daughter of Ptolemy II, her marriage to the Seleucid king Antiochus II had such an outlandishly valuable wedding gift that one of her epithets would be Phernophoros, the dowry bringer, though this didn't deter Antiochus from looking for better prospects. This highly pragmatic way of conducting marriages was not restricted to men. There is plenty of reason to suspect that mothers also played a role in scoping out suitable royal candidates for their daughters, and using their influence with the king to help arrange it. The lady candidates themselves would sometimes play a role in the decision of their own matchmaking efforts, maybe not to the same degree of Cleopatra to Julius Caesar, but instead relying on political astuteness to win over their prospective husband-to-be, such as Cleopatra Thea, who proactively arranged her own third marriage, much to the surprise of everyone else. In addition, if a bride felt that she was not being treated with the proper dignity and respect befitting her station, she could return back to the household of her guardian, taking the dowry with her. But beyond the practical aspects, there is evidence that love could certainly be part of the equation. Some royal marriages managed to stand the test of time, such as Seleucus I and his Sogdian wife, Apama, who were married long before the political advantages of staying together were apparent. Kings would often give great gifts to their favorite brides, whether in the form of personal wealth, as we soon shall see, but also naming great cities in their wives' honor. Still, you cannot forget that these were political at their core, 
and whatever emphasis on love we may place in a modern sense cannot easily be transplanted to the past. It would not be far-fetched to say that the relationship between a Hellenistic queen and her husband was probably limited, all things considered, but perhaps the strongest relationship would be between a royal mother and her child, specifically between mothers and sons. In effect, the main job of a queen outside of marriage alliances was to provide royal heirs, i.e. males, to ensure that the dynasty would survive. The same was relatively true in the lower classes, with the tolls of childhood diseases and infant mortality increasing the need to have as many children as possible. What the lower classes didn't have to deal with was the complications that would inevitably occur as a consequence of polygamy and political intrigue that would frequently result in the murders and executions of children at the hands of rival family members and competition from other wives. A degree of political power was granted to women to use at their discretion, as we mentioned before, but royal political power was almost entirely masculine in nature and generally required the king or a male regent to authorize it to some degree, whether explicitly or implicitly. The way that many royal women channeled their ambition and exercise of political power was primarily through their sons. Based on evidence from our sources, it has to be understood that there are certain tropes and attacks from hostile authors who try to blame the failures of a kingdom on the personal dealings of its royal household, and so the degree to which royal tiger moms were involved with the machinations of propping up their sons as royal heirs shouldn't be over-exaggerated, but for these women, competing against the many other brides of the king and their offspring would have more than enough reason to try and make moves to ensure that their children's status as the royal heir would be kept. But not only that, they would also have to ensure that their children would survive the messy politics that would inevitably come whenever a new regent is crowned. There are several famous examples of these women, the most prominent being Olympias of Epirus, who had an extremely close relationship with Alexander. And no, I don't buy into the Oedipal complex, so get that thought out of your head. Olympias certainly worked hard to advocate her son as the primary heir to the kingdom of Macedon. And when the death of Philip II left Macedon in a state of political turmoil, she has been accused of orchestrating the deaths of another royal wife and her new infant son to eliminate any challengers to Alexander's reign. Olympias would also famously take part in the civil war of Macedon during the wars of the Diadochoi against another rival queen to try and protect her grandson, Alexander IV. Once their sons were on the throne, royal mothers could try and influence the new king, or in a few cases, they would act as the de facto monarch of the kingdom, like the Seleucid queen Cleopatra Thea, generally due to their sons being underaged, or, in the view of some hostile authors, effeminate and weak-willed. These royal women could be classified with a number of designations, some of which I believe are important to better understand the context of future power dynamics. A queen mother would mean that she is the mother of the current king, lacking real authority but could hold sway through influence and symbolic importance. Then there is the queen regent, who would be ruling the realm as representing the will of the underage son. So, while not officially a sole monarch, she would wield considerable power akin to one. Then there is the queen regnant, the only time a sole female monarch would occur thanks to the deaths of her husband and children, or due to being the only child of a previously reigning king. 
However, the Queen Regnant was nowhere near as prevalent as the Queen Regent, and we therefore can assume that the height of royal women's power would be at this particular stage. The strength of the relationship between royal mother and her children was an important image to project, emphasizing the unity of the house. Some kings would be given the epithet Philomitor, literally one who loves their mother, and it would reflect well on the royal mothers whose devotion to raising good children would be a sign of virtue and dignity. This image was readily used by the Adelid dynasty of the Kingdom of Pergamon to represent the beloved queen Apollonis, a woman of low birth who managed to become a devoted wife and a loving mother to four royal sons, and she would have the honors of being frequently invoked as the model royal lady by both public decrees and authors like Plutarch and Polybius. Things weren't always so ideal, however, as there are certainly a number of examples of mothers who aren't afraid to play dirty with even their own children, and vice versa with children towards their mothers. Women could play favorites, such as the I of Macedon, who explicitly was grooming one of her two sons for the throne, despite being ordered to enforce a joint rule, or the Seleucid queen the I, who either instigated or supported a revolt by the younger son Antiochus Hyrax against the older Seleucus II in the 240s. This explicit interference could, and did, backfire on these ambitious women. No love was lost between Cleopatra Thea and Antiochus VIII Grippus, the latter murdering the former in revenge for an attempted plot, but it should be mentioned that these are the exceptions rather than the rule because ultimately, the safety of the queen was dependent on the safety of her children. Without a royal connection, they could easily end up on the hit list of a more ambitious noblewoman or a dissatisfied husband. To help bolster her own legitimacy and the likelihood of her children's success, royal wives were surrounded by a network of close confidants and friends, the so-called phaloi, who could be male or female and are tied by bonds of loyalty. The phaloi of the kings were often the policymakers or the advisor of policies, but for women, it was important to get a lot of supporters via donatives or gifts, just in case a succession crisis happens. Then they could call upon these supporters for aid. These supporters could range from handmaidens to generals and administrative officials. Such was the case for Laodike I, who had a rival wife's son captured and executed by a government official in Antioch. When it comes to actual power, the two main dynasties that show a marked increase in female agency are the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucids of Syria. Women of Antigone and Macedon, despite its past history of formidable ladies like Olympias or Eurydice II, never seem to carry this tradition into the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, and in some opinions they are seen as being less independent than before, thanks to a surprising lack of information about them in our sources. The other two dynasties managed to ensure a greater amount of political independence and authority were granted. We know that they could act in the name of their husbands when it came to hearing out the petitions of commoners or the ambassadors who came to visit court, primarily when the husband was out making war in the distant territories of the kingdom and beyond. In the last episode, I discussed how lower class women increasingly acquired land in their own name, something that was relatively unheard of in classical Greece. The same could be said for royal women, many of whom would possess more wealth than any Greek or Macedonian woman before them. Their wealth could derive from a number of things, including shared wealth with the husbands via the kingdom's personal supply, but more generally, they would be given their own personal economic units. This could be land, like the possession of a city or an area of cultivation, 
whose revenues would go directly to the owner's purse. But this was relatively uncommon in Egypt. Instead, royal women could be granted certain economic privileges, such as Arsinoe II, who held the right to all revenues from fishing in Lake Moeris, which was substantial enough to be valued at one silver talent per day. And for reference, that's roughly equivalent to the daily wages of 6,000 day laborers. They also can be from gifts, which could be extremely extravagant, as was the case of Arsinoe, again, who was married to the elderly Lysimachus, and given more than one city along the Black Sea for her own personal possession. Even compared to 3rd century Sparta, there was no attempt to limit the amount of wealth of these Macedonian queens, and this wealth belonged to them permanently. The daughter of Agathocles, Lanassa, was married to Pyrrhus of Epirus and brought with her the entire island of Corsaira as a dowry. Once she left Pyrrhus for another, she took the island with her, much to Pyrrhus's dismay. But with all this wealth, what could they do with it? Well, one way was through sponsorships and donatives as gestures of goodwill towards the people they ruled. Typically, it would be in the realm of the feminine. Laodike III established a fund to support the marriage dowries for girls in the city of Iassos, and Arsinoe II of Egypt paid for festivals for Aphrodite to celebrate marriages. Sometimes this would extend towards relief funds, such as the reconstruction of buildings following earthquakes, or through patronage of the arts like Phila of Macedon, mother of Antigonus Gonatas, who was a sponsor for many court philosophers and intellectuals. Yet, we do have instances of more masculine activities, mainly from Egypt, but a few in here and there pop up elsewhere. According to the fragment from the poet Kalimachus and a few other sources, Berenike II of Egypt was a well-known chariot racer with a number of victories to her name, though it should be clarified that she did not actually act as the charioteer during the races, instead preferring to be the sponsor for the team and paying for the cost of raising racehorses, which was no small burden by any means. Epigrams from the period recall her successes across the Hellenistic world, from the Ismithian Games in Corinth to the more famous Olympics, where she was quite proud of the fact that she had broken records set by a female Spartan chariot racer some hundred years before. But perhaps the most distinctly male activity that we have some degree of evidence for by Hellenistic women is in the realm of warfare. I must admit, I've always been hesitant on approaching this particular topic, because it's a tender subject that needs to be addressed with a degree of nuance. Traditionally, warfare in the Greek and Roman world has almost been exclusively dominated by men, both in terms of command structure and in terms of the actual soldiering. There have been a number of examples, both mythological and historical, that have been pointed to as evidence of female participation in ancient combat, such as the so-called Amazons, who may be an outsider's interpretation of nomadic steppe culture, which has always had a more blurred line in regards to men and women's roles on the battlefield. But there are also examples of figures like Artemisia of Halicarnassus, who served as a commander in the invasion force of the Persian king Xerxes I, as recorded by Herodotus, or the cases where women would assist in the defense of their besieged cities, like the Spartan women who fought against Pyrrhus of Epiros. However, like any other depiction of ancient women in our sources, we need to be careful in our assessment. The presence of women warriors was often seen as something barbaric, or an example of where a society has gone wrong, especially to a male Greco-Roman author, an inversion of the traditional roles that define a civilized society. 
It was therefore often used as an attack to show how pathetic the menfolk are of a nation, unable to handle their women and not be dignified enough to let themselves be led. As stated by Xerxes in Herodotus' histories, quote, My men have become women, and my women men. As a general rule, I would say that in Greco-Macedonian society, even in the Hellenistic period, women taking active roles on the battlefield was extremely unusual and rare. However, let us look at what the sources tell us. At the beginning of the Hellenistic period proper, in the wake of the wars of the Diodohoi, we have the case of Eurydice II, a granddaughter of Philip II who was married to the half-wit Philip Aridaeus. Eurydice's mother, Kynane, which I have been improperly pronouncing as Sinane, so please forgive me for my past transgressions, was apparently a rather warlike woman, whose mother was an Illyrian princess wed to Philip II, and passed on her warlike traditions to Eurydice. Polyinus, a writer who compiled a number of famous strategies used by famous commanders and soldiers, specifically mentions that Kynane herself participated in a number of battles, and even killed another Illyrian queen in one-on-one -on -one combat. Her daughter, Eurydice, would also be taught many of these skills, and she would take command of an army during the wars of the successors against Olympias of Epirus, who herself was at the head of an army. And for the first time in Greek history, a war would be fought between two women. The contrast is apparent in the sources. Olympias was portraying herself as a more feminine religious figure, whereas Eurydice was more in the vein of her mother, clad in armor like Xena, warrior princess. So, we have a number of instances from sources that have no reason to be hostile that demonstrate there, there were women at the head of armies. In the Middle Hellenistic period, the often cited example would be Arsinoe III, who was with her brother-husband Ptolemy IV at the Battle of Raphia against Antiochus III of the Seleucid Empire in 217 BC. Both sources for the battle, Polybius and the author of Three Maccabees, agree on this, but both diverge on the role she played. Polybius claims that she and Ptolemy IV had given a rousing speech together to turn the tide of battle against Antiochus, whereas Three Maccabees gives her sole credit for victory. Maccabees clearly had an axe to grind against the Seleucids, so painting the defeat of Antiochus III as a result of a woman would be more humiliating. But Polybius had likely his own interest in giving Ptolemy and Arsinoe equal representation, due to the friendly nature of the Ptolemies towards the Romans during this period. With the examples above, and a few other examples like Cleopatra Thea, or even Cleopatra VII, I probably can make some sort of generalized statement in regards to what I think about this discussion. I believe that the notion of a warrior queen or Amazon in a Greco-Macedonian society is a bit overdrawn. Hellenistic warfare, much like the classical and archaic Greek warfare before, was almost exclusively a male-dominated affair. However, this does not mean it never happened. Macedonians and Egyptians were far more accepting of female, rather royal female, commanders than the southern Greeks or Romans. And thanks to the abundance of mercenaries and high amount of personal wealth that these women could acquire, their loyalty could be bought. Women would be present at the battlefields in ways that were unthinkable in the time before the Hellenistic period, and both literally command armies or symbolically associated with military power, arising due to the way the perception of royal power had changed and the need to defend oneself or one's position in the brutal dynastic politics of the era.
a realm of major importance for Hellenistic royal women, is their role in the religious practices of the royal house. In the general landscape of the Greco-Macedonian world, religion was deeply important and personal to women, allowing them to exercise a degree of agency and autonomy that was otherwise lacking in their legal rights, often acting as priestesses and prophets, interlocutors between the mortal and the divine, or members of certain religious cults. This was strongly encouraged by the male members of society, who would often foot the bill to allow their wives and daughters to take part in the appropriate religious rites, since it would be integral to feminine identity and the health of the polis. The same was true for Hellenistic queens, but on a much grander scale, given their increased access to political power and personal wealth. On a practical level, queens would often be benefactors to temples and religious centers throughout the Hellenistic world, ranging from important sanctuaries like the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, or local shrines and dedications. Kings, too, would also perform such acts, but royal women particularly patronized temples and festivals for goddesses who particularly had relevance for female-centric activities, such as marriage and childbirth. Of all the main goddesses of the Greek pantheon, Aphrodite was of particular interest, especially in Ptolemaic Egypt, but royal ladies could have often favored deities that they felt they had a special connection with. Olympias was famously, or infamously, depending on the way you look at it, a devotee of Dionysus, often representing herself as a menad, owing a woman of high piety. This devotion to religion, and in particular mystery cults like Dionysus, could often be used as ammunition by hostile writers, who would paint women involved as scheming or practitioners of magic, drawing parallels to the witch Medea from the tales of Jason and the Argonauts, and Olympias herself had been on the receiving end of such comparisons. One of the most important rites that was traditionally reserved for women was the care for the bodies of the dead, sending them to the afterlife with all the associated actions and practices required. The queens often did the same thing, such as Phila of Macedon, who was responsible with the rights to give to the slain Macedonian soldiers. Moving away from the practical, what was the role of the Hellenistic royal lady in the symbolic? When we look at many coins of the Hellenistic world, a number of examples survive with the queen's portrait on the front, and on the reverse or adjacent to the portrait would be images of items like cornucopias or goddesses of fertility in both agriculture and childbearing, so images of Aphrodite or Tyche would be very common. The queen herself would also never show her true age, always being depicted as youthful in appearance, but with the clothing befitting her station as a motherly or matronly figure, even as she was beyond childbearing years. She was the symbol of the prosperity and fertility of the realm, as it ties into her ultimate purpose to produce more heirs to the throne, and hence more peace and stability, at least on paper. This was often taken one step further in certain regions, where the queens could either figuratively or literally adopt the form of various local goddesses. Ruler cults in the Hellenistic period, based on the research that I have done, are largely overdrawn, in the sense that the monarchs themselves would not be seen as walking-talking gods on earth, but rather would be accorded honors equivalent to the gods, the Greek isotheoi timai. These ruler cults would be, could be propagated by the state, or for the privacy of the home, and the goddesses that the queens would associate themselves with would be commonly the likes of Aphrodite or Hera. However, to better reconcile with their subject populations, some of the queens would adopt the imagery of a local goddess, depending on the region, 
In the case of the Ptolemies, queens like Berenike II were keen to portray themselves in a manner to the Egyptian goddess Isis, the divine mother of Horus, and thereby all other pharaohs, and exploited this in their coinage and statues. Speaking of coins, it is during this period for the first time that women managed to get their portraits on Greco-Macedonian currency. Prior to the likes of Alexander and Philip II, it was uncommon for a living king to put their face on the coinage of their realm. But 30 years after Alexander's death, it became all the rage, as every ruler sought to broadcast their power and prestige through the language that everyone spoke and which traveled quickly, money. It is an even more astounding change that royal Hellenistic women begin to take positions on royal currency as early as the 280s BC. A gold coin bears the image of Arsinoe II and her brother-husband Ptolemy II, indicating that they were symbolically represented as being on nearly the same level of prestige and power. There are also coins just bearing the image of Arsinoe II alone, with the reverse showing a cornucopia to symbolize fertility for both the realm in terms of agricultural output and the royal house by way of producing offspring. The rulers of Egypt were always more equal in the symbolic representation of the women on their currency, but even the Seleucids managed to put a few queens on the coinage, like Cleopatra Thea, though she too was a Ptolemy by birth and likely carried these practices to the empire during her stand-in regency for her children. If we are going to look at the representation of Hellenistic queens, it is also important to briefly discuss their legacy, particularly in the eyes of the Romans, who had a great deal to say after Augustus's conquest of Egypt at the end of the civil wars. Part of Augustus's propaganda was to frame the war as being against the wiles of a foreign queen, rather than a civil war against Mark Antony. The poet Horace gloats over the domination of Cleopatra in one of his odes, while at the same time stressing her dignity while facing her demise. The fear and mistrust of women who are granted such power, largely by way of political scheming and sexual licentiousness that is part and parcel of the practices of the East, at least in Roman eyes, it is mixed with the fascination of the viewers, both ancient and the modern, at seeing such ambitious women attempting to assert themselves in a largely male-dominated world. In a way, this legacy managed to persist into the empire, as Roman empresses and royal ladies, Livia, Agrippina, later women like Gallia Placidia and Zenobia, or the many famous empresses of the Byzantine period like Theodora and Irene, all managed to continue the traditions established by the women of the Hellenistic world. And it is here I believe we can wrap up the episode. I could certainly go on about the exploits of various royal women, but these will certainly be covered when we actually go through the narrative stories of the Hellenistic kingdoms, since they will return time and time again, and will be explored in much more detail. If you are looking for specific works to hold you off while you wait, I have used a number of authors for researching the last two episodes, such as Professor Elizabeth Carney in her works Olympias, Mother of Alexander the Great, and Women and Monarchy in Ancient Macedonia, or Sarah B. Pomeroy's Women in Hellenistic Egypt. These and a number of others are listed in my sources for this episode's show notes on my website. Next time we meet, we will be returning to a narrative structure out in the East, where we will cover the foundation of the Seleucid Empire from Seleucus to Antiochus. So, until then, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>